Anita for the kind introductions and of course for hosting the AI Science Cafe series here at the Royal Institution. It's a real honor uh, for us. Um, I'm from the Czech Center, uh, just a sentence. The Czech Center, uh, we tend to uh, promote the mutual ties and foster the ties between the UK and the Czech Republic in a number of areas uh, in innovation, science, but also culture and art. And it seems that day after tomorrow, we might have some more jobs to, to do, uh, so we're rolling up our sleeves. Uh, you might be asking why we do the AI, why we're dedicating the entire series to the artificial intelligence. In particular, the, the AI, not a long time ago, has not really been a topic on the radar of many companies or government institutions, nor the uh, individuals. But the situation today is very different, and I think five, ten years from now will be dramatically different, uh, even from, uh, from, from today. Uh, over the last year, the AI uh, really evolved from the, the, the popular, popularizing, popularizing realm of, uh, of the chess game, uh, been beating the best chess players, uh, it been composing the, uh, the classical music, which the score is not really, cannot see the difference from the masterpiece. It does also the, the modern conceptual art with full of expressions and emotion. And I feel it's just the beginning. I think many of us are using the smart devices uh, full uh, with the social media, social networks, different applications. And uh, the transactional data and informations are being processed with algorithms that have unparalleled capability uh, to store and analyze our data which are not comparable with the human brains. Uh, there have been a number of studies and analysis uh, being uh, performed, and it proved that the computer algorithms from companies like Facebook, Google, the Microsoft, uh, Cortana, Apple, Siri, everyone knows, uh, are a better judge of human decision and predict much more accurately the actions that we as a people uh, do today. Uh, there is an indisputable trend that many people uh, give up their privacy and individuality to conducting much of their lives uh, online. Uh, having said that, the subject of a cybersecurity and personal privacy is of eminent uh, importance. And I'm very pleased that we have here uh, this evening uh, one of the great experts in the area of cybersecurity and privacy, Professor Michal Pechouček. Uh, Michal, just a brief introduction. He's a lecturer professor at the Czech Technical University. He's also a founder of the AI Center in Prague, a successful entrepreneur. But fairly recently, he also became a chief technology officer at the leading antivirus company, uh, Avast. Before I turn the floor to Michal, I want to just say the last, uh, last information that after the presentation, there will be a dialogue and a QA uh, with Michal, which will be uh, led and chaired by Professor uh, Michael Luck, uh, who is uh, another esteemed uh, expert on, on the AI. He's also the executive dean of the uh, faculty, natural and mathematical sciences at the King's College here in, in London. So without any further ado, I would like to turn the floor now to Mike and I 
wish you have an inspirational uh, evening. Thank you. Thank you very much. So thank you. I'm really pleased, honor. Uh, it is emotional because, you know, uh, 25 years ago, I got my degree in AI from Edinburgh. So I'm kind of coming back and sharing my learnings, not from my studies, but from those 25 years when I practice AI. And I would like to share that with you. Um, uh, e even though I'm currently a tech executive at Avast, uh, in heart, in soul, I'm still an academic, which you will see through the slides. You know, whenever the academics is given the opportunity to speak, he prepares twice as many slides, right? So <coughs> uh, I cannot plan for 60 minutes, so I'll be flying over similar to as all the other professors are, are doing. So you will see the drill. So before I'll do this, I want kind of to explicate the takeaway, right? So I'll be speaking about security and about this like very important aspect of security which is cyber security and i'll try to explain to you the links between ai and cyber security why it's important and why it's hard right so if you guys lead this lecture this debate uh with the takeaway that you know that it's important and then you understand why it's hard i'll be i'll be really pleased so uh I'll be speaking not, not only about kind of my ideas and my work, but I'll be also speaking about the work of many of my colleagues, a uh, few of those uh, are listed here. Um, so why, why AI is so successful today, right? So you know, people have many definitions, right? So I will simplify my definition that I like to work from is that AI is a scientific field, scientific field and a set of technologies that are here for us to be able to uh, replicate or improve or accelerate or more, make more precise human cognitive capability. And by human cognitive capabilities, I mean reasoning, decision-making, and perception, right? So those kind of three important things that people are doing, AI is trying to kind of build in programs. And uh, coincidentally, those Human capabilities are very much connected to how people are earning money. It's very much related, right? So this is it's often our work based on what we see, how we, how we reason, how we plan, how we decide to make actions, how we work with numbers, how we predict. And AI, because of its recent advancements, is capable of kind of doing lots of this work for us. And it's kind of dipping in our job market. So until we all see that, and this is a big change, and when people ask me what is going to be the big piece in uh, 2030, whether it's going to be an intelligent toilet, I say, no, 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 it will be jobs, right? Until we kind of all know this. Um, Cybersecurity as a field is, believe it or not, it's function of people. There are defenders and there are attackers and there are people, right? However, this whole ecosystem of, of attacks is big and vast, and it's getting to be fairly automated, right? So we are seeing like lots of automation happening on the side of the attackers as much as on the side of the defenders. And uh, this is what I want to speak about. Just to give you a big, bit of a context, AI is successful because it's, it's bringing money. So and unlike in 90s, where we did this great, you know, there was AI winter, right? But there were great papers written on AI uh, 25 years ago that are pretty much like the foundations of current applications. But these, these days AI is important because it's, 
it's, it's now turning the results into applications. And there are actually three families of applications that I would like to kind of emphasize. One is AI for business, kind of AI being in e-commerce, in industry, in transportation, and kind of making our life easier, therefore making money and selling the service and the capability. So this AI all around us, that this is like this, this big application field. There is the newly emerging application field, which is AI for social good, right? So there is a lot these days that we see happening in AI, in climate, uh, AI for uh, wildlife, AI for diet and healthcare. Well, well healthcare is still business. Uh, AI for poverty. So there are no new applications that we've been seeing only recently. And this is going to be like the new big trends for AI applications. And there's a third one, which is somewhere in between. And it's AI for citizen safety and security. It's an important piece, it's business, right? So people pay for security, but at the same time, it's vital for how our society is structured and organized. And this is the field of application which, which interests me and where I've been spending my professional career. So, and now why it, the time is ripe now to really talk about AI and cybersecurity? For one, because nobody actually cracked it, right? Right? So we are seeing those great results with DeepMind that are able to predict uh, a glaucom 10 years ago from the retina scan. This is, that's a big result. That's impressive moonshot. So we see impressive moonshots in, in transportation and in other fields. We haven't seen an impressive AI moonshot in the field of cybersecurity as of yet. Why is that? A couple of reasons, right? The reason number one is that it's hard. The subject matter expertise of understanding the internet traffic and being able to sp split the good internet traffic from malware is non-trivial. You need good education and years of practice to be able to do this. It's not like being able to distinguish images, uh, koala from, uh, from monkey, right? So anybody can do this. Doing malware analysis, that's hard. Second one is uh, we don't have data. AI is driven by data, and for lots of applications, data is readily available. For cybersecurity, it's not the case. Companies don't share malware data, cannot share malware data. It's very difficult to kind of come up with like a testing corporate that everybody can use and experiment with, right? So it's the second reason. Third reason is it's just not popular with these scientists. I was looking into how many papers that were written on advanced neural machine learning, which is the, the closest AI field to cybersecurity this year. It was 1,200 papers on advanced neural machine learning. It's a huge number, lots of papers, right? You know how many those were on malware? 30 bloody six. Only 36 papers were in the field of malware analysis. So people are not excited. And I want to excite you. Who is here uh, that is, who is preparing for his PhD in computer science? Is there any PhD student? Okay, so I can maybe excite you even more that even at a later stage of your career, you can even then try to uh, think about uh, doing a PhD. And um, the last argument why we are not there yet is that people tend to speak about results. And today I'll be speaking about the work in progress. I will leave the results for the researchers and scientists that work with me to present at conferences, but today I'll be more visionary and I'll be speaking about the work in progress, right? So I haven't uh, given uh, this talk before, right? It's my kind of fresh 
freshly, freshly baked, baked content. So uh, now comes acceleration, right? So I'll, I'll do this uh, slightly uh, faster. So why, why people bother writing malware? Why it's so important and exciting? So it's a business, right? People do this because they are building and selling botnets on the market. People are building and selling ransomware that is encrypting your hard drive, and then they are asking you for ransom to uh, be given back the data. Uh, people write malware to steal private data, right? To steal uh, valuable documents. People write malware to launch uh, DDoS attacks, and often people write malware to create spams. So often malware is aggregated, is, uh, must be spread while wide to be able to collect uh, the revenue, right? If if there is too little revenue with malware, and it's too expensive to write, it, people don't do this. It's like very e very economical thing. So one of the approaches that the cybersecurity experts are taking is trying to make uh, the, writing, the malware writing process expensive. So that it's not worthy to do this. Unfortunately, the, uh, the truth is the opposite, that AI is making the malware process writing cheaper than any time before. So I give you like a peek view into antivirus engine. What is it is happening? It's not one program, it's a series of programs doing different things and pretty much kind of taking internet traffic in, taking the files that are being sent across the network in and telling the verdict on each of, of the files whether it's clean or whether it's malicious, right? And there are different phases of the analysis that uh, any antivirus uh, uh, anti um, uh, system is doing. So one is, like checking on the web whether the file came from a, like a malicious address, like very simple. So then there is a next layer where uh, the, uh, the, uh, the file is being kind of reconstructed and analyzed syntactically, whether there are some, some flags that may uh, suggest that it's malware. Often it's not the case because the malware is, is packed in some packer. So then uh, people are running the piece of uh, file in some sandbox in some virtual environment to see what what is it it's doing whether it's sending somewhere something or not right so there are like lots of experiments that are done in real time while the internet traffic is, uh, traffic is going and many of those slides these days are AI enabled so there are AI algorithms there are lots of classifiers anomaly detectors lots of AI programs that are making it possible for us to crunch through this huge uh, volume of data. Just to give you the idea so that you know, this, you know the volume, uh, Avast sees every day, Avast blocks every day 50 million of attacks, right? 50 million attacks every single day. Avast sees every single day 1 million new files that we haven't seen before, 1 million. Out of this, a couple of tens a couple of hundreds thousand are new malware that we haven't seen before. To kind of give you the scale, you know, how, how busy we are, right? Uh, we have um, 420 million users, right? You know, how many people, you know, I cannot, I cannot say how many people, but it's a small number, <laughs> small number of people is checking uh, the, the traffic. And it's possible only because all those slices are AI enabled. Lots of the analytical work is automated, 
lots of uh, lots of it lot of, lots of it, uh, of it is done automatically and those analysts that are working in in the company are only working on those more those most complicated and interesting attacks so i'll accelerate even more i just give you this idea this that's it's one piece of malware that we saw changing in like what seven days and each time the system identified one why it's malware and these are the arguments these are the strings that were found in the malware which was the same piece of malware but it was changing polymorphically automatically and the system find the argument the trigger condition why this particular piece is malware okay so i'll try to speed up a bit so people often ask me whether the attackers on the other side the bad guys whether they are using ai right is it is it so you know are are we in ai against ai world currently i told you that we are not because we have attackers defenders all para professionals ai empowered and the attackers are using ai for a number of reasons right so currently we see uh, attackers using ai for creating a misleading content so lots of content that is being created and propagated online currently is ai created so ai is used successfully for building a sophisticated phishing attacks so the more the internet knows about you the more private data you disclose and share on social networks and the attackers have an access to they can use ai to understand and build your behavioral profile kind of they can predict what you like where you show what you want to do and having this model they can script much more believable phishing attacks right that could tell you you know you have to click here because we know you very very well right only my mother knows me this well so and this is the argument why people click right so also ai is using for building a sophisticated believable phishing email these days so people have experimented with using ai for uh, cracking uh, wi-fi access very successfully people use ai for building uh, spam engines uh, ibm have recently announced that they have built what they called a deep locker which is a piece of malware that is having the uh, trigger conditions the the if then rules that tell the program when it's supposed to attack it is embedded in a neural network which is very difficult to reconstruct nobody understands it hence this piece of malware is undetectable and ibm were able to show that this is possible so lots of cool stuff is happening on the on the on the attacker side so the bad news is that the defenders are just one step behind the attackers the whole field the whole cybersecurity business is very reactive actually because we are building new tools and new programs to detect malware that we see right we rarely build a capability that is predictive that is able to predict malware that is that will be here with us in the future so it's very reactive business and uh, it's also slow because there are uh, only tens of the analysts now here here's the number that i wasn't able to uh, that, that i shouldn't tell you so it's tens of analysts 
are trying to analyze uh, malware that was written by uh, thousands of malware programmers. And also, it is very brittle because a de 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 detection is still to see only some malware samples, and the trivial modification of the samples is difficult for the antivirus systems to be able to detect. So it's, it's very complicated. So we have ideas, right? So we know what we want to do, right? So we would like to make a foundational, and we are making a foundational AI and computer science progress in two fields that are very topical today. They're on the state of the art of the latest development in AI. One is explainable machine learning, right? Because what we see as a cyber security practitioners is that AI and machine learning is fairly successful in detecting malware, but the analysts don't believe it. The analysts that get their own eyes, they, it's like doctors, right? Doctors are not that great for taking new technology. Security analysts are, are the same. They understand the world very well, the, you know, the world of the attackers, and they are not keen to take on new techniques. And for them to use machine learning and AI for analyzing traffic, it's very cumbersome, and they don't want to do this. So we are building a new set of methods that are explainable, where the verdict, the declassifier, or the detector says about the traffic explains, gives the explanation, explains why the, the verdict that this piece of file is malicious, it's dangerous, it's lethal, why is it so? Right? The explanation piece, nobody is kind of working on this very much in cybersecurity, and this is like a big thing that you know, we want to build and hence uh, allow the cybersecurity professionals to be more open to AI and machine learning. And the second one is adversarial AI, adversarial machine learning. Right? So we, we see that AI is these days very fragile. It can be misled. Right? So we see examples how people can mislead AI. And as I told you, like big part of our engine is AI-enabled. So through adversarial examples, we can mislead the antivirus system. So we would like to foster and build our system to be robust against adversarial uh, samples. So to be able to do so, we have, we have a team, right? We have a team that is on a mission towards a non-incremental AI and computer science result. And this team is called Avast CVUT, Joint Lab for AI and Cybersecurity, which is a joint lab between the university and the antivirus company Avast that has been established two years ago. And it puts together like three components, the university uh, scientists, the people in threat lab, which are the security analysts, and people in AIR, which is the Avast AI research uh, lab. Recently, we have expanded this team and we work with people at uh, UC Berkeley. There is a great research center in advanced machine learning that, is, that became part of the team. We also work with the computer science department at Stanford. And recently, we've also included, uh, included King's College in London, and we have a small contract with the researchers here in London. And this is the structure of the team that is going to work together on this, uh, on this big, big mission. So the high-level idea right, for this moonshot is that we would like to be able to create an AI system that is not only servicing like a small slice of the, of the, of the antivirus system, 
It's modeling the decision-making as a whole. It's collecting all the data that we know about the traffic on the internet, all the data that is around the file itself, and we, are, and we would like to train the system to be able to do the holistic decision and the analysis about what kind of file that is. We would like to be able to construct the explanation, right? So whenever like huge complex neural network tells us that this file is malicious, we would like to build a system that tells me why. Currently, not many people do this, and to kind of really foster here or emphasize the role of the European research. In Europe, we have a tradition of like logic-based AI, knowledge-based AI, reasoning-based AI, which is slightly different to the latest trend in statistical AI. And because there is a tradition and lots of knowledge in this field, I think that Europe is better positioned to make a contribution in this capability, the capability to, 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 explain, to explain the decision of uh, artificial intelligence. So it's a second big, big challenge. The third challenge is to understand how is it that the malware writers, how they are changing malware. This little piece of code, it's, it's lethal, it's doing something bad, and how do they change it so that it continues to do things wrong, but it's being seen as a legitimate piece of, uh, piece, piece of file. This is non-trivial, but people do this, and this is becoming slowly automated. And then, last but not least, we would like to train the classifiers that are robust against such changes of files. So what is it that we want to improve? There is one, one uh, matrix that we want to improve, and this is the time to detect, right? So malware is created. There is somebody who first executed. Luckily, somebody from the cybersecurity industry sees it and makes an experiment and sample, uh, analyzes the sample, creates a rule, and then uploads the rule into the antivirus engines. In between, the malware is spread and many users are infected. And if we would be able, with the proper use of AI, to shorten this time, right, and this is what we are doing, less and less people will be infected. So this is our objective function. This is what we are trying to do, to make this time as short as possible. So um, the information that we work with is the statical information about the file, how it looks like. We can open it and look what is inside. So we have a dynamical understanding of the file. We can test it and see what it does, right? And then we have also the behavioral analysis of the file, therefore what, what the file is doing with the user, right? So and this creates like lots of difficult, complicated data. And one of the innovation, the novelty that we were able to do is to be able to represent this complex data in a single format, right? And you know, uh, web pages are written in HTML, right? So that's the language how you code web pages. And there is a different language which kind of looks like a complex graph-like tree that can encode the knowledge about how bad is the file. And the innovation that we have made is that we were able to show that we can train a classifier which takes the training data not as an image, right? You know, if you take the classifier that tells you that there is a black cat on your image, right? It's simple, 
So you get zillions of images. Here, you've got those files, those tree-like graphs. And we were, able to, we were able to build a machine that is being trained on top of these complex graphs, non-trivial structures. How it differs from classical machine learning, mainly, is that the training examples, the events that you use for training your AI, are non are dissimilar. They don't have the same size, right? Image has got the same size, always same number of, of pixels, pretty much, right? Or give or take. Here, based on what is happening on the network, this file is, is each time different. And our, like the important AI contribution is to be able to do machine learning on top of these complex files. So <clears throat> we were able to use what we call a multiple instance learning, which is a result of a previous research work that was done in the 90s. Currently, many people use a, a term deep set for the same concept. And it's actually showing that learning can be done recursively on files that have recursive structure. So I, I, I guess I will not go much deep, much deeper than that. I will not be explaining to you the exact mechanics how the neural network is being trained to be able to do this. And instead, I tell you that <coughs> what we have built is a simple machine that is testing what is the minimal set of the features that are supporting the verdict that the, malicious, that the file is malicious, right? And we have a machine that is minimizing the examples and trying to find the minimal working example that is still telling the engine that the file is malicious. And this is a structure for explanation. And this explanation is being provided to the, uh, to the, uh, to the analysts. So I guess I'll skip this piece and speak very briefly about adversarial attacks. So the other challenge that we are working on is to make sure that uh, the AV engine is not uh, is robust against adversarial examples. What happened to Avast many years ago was that there is a competing company in cybersecurity, and they for some reason, they knew that we are like really good in trying to detect a Trojan, right? Trojan malware. And they were able to reverse engineer the algorithm that did that. Once they were able to do this, they were sending on the internet files that we classified as Trojan, but they were legitimate. They were able to deceive the system because they knew how the algorithm works. And through doing that, they were harming our efficiency. So then in tests, our engine didn't work that well because it was claiming files that were artificially engineered to look like malware, but not big malware. So, so they sent those files. They were not doing any harm. They only deceived our system. So it's, it's an example of an adversarial, adversarial sample. These days, you all know those adversarial examples that people use in computer vision, right? You, you all saw those images that look like for a human being as a stop sign, and the camera reads them as a speed limit, right? You can, you can engineer an image that the camera thinks it's a speed limit, but it's stop sign, right? And these are kind of carefully crafted samples of data that are 
deceiving the, the algorithm. And the cybersecurity uh, professionals on the attacker side, they are doing exactly the same thing. They are kind of crafting files that look like legitimate, but they are malicious. How they do this? They are modifying malware. They are bringing, they are putting like a legitimate piece of code to malware to look like legitimate. A nice example is a Microsoft Surface license. It's a piece of file that if you're gonna add it to malware, it looks like Microsoft something, right? So then, like in the past, lots of engines saw, okay, this is Microsoft something, let us, let us be it, right? And it was this mix of piece of benign, legitimate piece of program with something like really lethal. And this mixture of things, this is, this is piece of art, right? And these days, to be able to deceive the anti-malware uh, anti, uh, anti systems efficiently, this mixture is being done through computer science and AI. So how you can avoid adversarial attacks in your defense system? You can do this by retraining, right? So you still retrain, you retrain and retrain so that your system is going to it learns all the possible changes that, you can, that can happen in your code, right? If you do this, the cost is that the efficiency of the decisions is being reduced, right? So you've got this, this trade-off, how pre predictive you can be, how many more future pieces of malware you want to include in the capability versus how, how precise and exact you are against the current uh, attacks. It's non-trivial. And uh, we were able to solve this by modeling the interaction between the defenders and attackers as a multi-party game. It actually is a multi-party game. There are like two, two teams, blue team, red team, and they are kind of fighting against each other. Uh, because in our team, there are experts in game theory, people who build deep, st deep stack. You know deep stack? Deep stack is the poker bot best in the world that first uh, was better than a human player, built at the University of Alberta by a team led by Mike Boeing. And a uh, few people from this team are now working with us in Avast and are trying to model the interaction between the attackers and defenders as a game. And there are, there are kind of actions that each of those players are making. The attackers are trying to uh, modify the malware in the cheapest possible way so that it costs almost nothing and it increases the likelihood of being undetectable. On the other hand, the AV people, they are trying to uh, tune the parameters of the neural network so that they are not reducing the efficiency, but they are increasing the predictability. So I would, I would love to speak more about how, how this is done. I only... Uh, tell you that you know, this, this piece of trying to model the interaction between the attackers and defenders is a, is a blue sky research. There are only a uh, few results being published these days. The latest uh, work that has been applied is, is the work by uh, Sadia Safros from UC Berkeley who wrote a monotonic classifiers that have the property of uh, non-reducing the efficacy and these results have been deployed in Microsoft ADP. So it's now running and it's protecting users of a Microsoft Windows. So without any further ado, I'll just sum up what are the benefits. So 
this, this whole research, this whole research work is, uh, if successful, it brings a couple of benefits to the society. So the one is that it really reduces the time to detect. So the AV engines are much, much faster and therefore less people will be, will be eff uh, affected, fewer infected users. Uh, we would be able to improve the benchmarks of the AV engines, it's very important. Second is we, we can generate high quality labels. Label is a training example. In current AI business, you've got a couple of things. One is problems, the other one is the, are the algorithms, and the next one is the training data. And the training data currently is a currency. Many people buy and sell training data. If your developer is building a chatbot, he, they can download the chatbot from the internet for free. What they need is good quality training data, and these are labels. There's been a startup recently acquired by somebody, by Uber, I know, or by somebody else, and they produce labels for autonomous driving, just feeds from cameras. This is like very, very expensive piece of raw, raw material. We believe if we would be able to produce explanations automatically, that's a raw material, right? So currently, only the expert people have their explanations in, in their head. But we believe that this piece of research that I just spoke about can generate explanations for why files are lethal automatically, and this data can be provided to others to train their classifiers. And uh, what is the most important result out of this research is that we would improve readiness of the society against future automated attacks that will be more and more driven by, by AI. So, and I think that with this, I just conclude my introductory remarks and with great joy ask uh, Professor Luck uh, to be here with me. Thank you, Michal. That was a fascinating talk. Uh, but it was, it was a talk that was, for me, a little complicated. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'd like to just ask you a few questions to explain a few things there. But I'd like to start with a question that my assistant asked me as I told her I was coming here to this, to this discussion today. And I said I was coming to, uh, to chair a discussion on, on uh, AI and security. And she said to me a question that sums everything up, really. She said, what about Terminator and Skynet? And how are you going to solve that? So my question to you, which covers everything, is think about the future. Before I get into the details, think about the future. Can you, can you make the world a better place with these technologies? Not necessarily specifically with malware, but in general the technologies. And, and can you save us from a future in which we have uh, okay. technologies taking over like um, Skynet from the Terminator films? So before I go to Skynet and Terminator, I'll tell you about the AI, right? So the AI can make a happier place because there are many skeptics, especially in California, right, who say that AI will not make a happy place here. And I actually think that it will. I'm an AI optimist. I actually think that you know, with, with more 
of AI doing the work for us that we were used that we are used to do, and we don't we won't be doing any longer, like the work in in banks and even writing software and 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 driving cars, perhaps, will be free to be more creative. Right? There'll be there won't be that many jobs that won't be creative, right? So there'll be a, a push, a requirement for human creativity. And I actually think that you, this is the foundational argument. Well, I think that you, we will never become slaves of AI, that AI will not enslave us, because we will be pushed no matter what to be, to be creative, right? Because the work which lots of, lots of us is currently doing, which doesn't provide much of a value and maybe even doesn't make any sense, will disappear. So, so I think that you know, this is why AI will be helpful. In terms of the Skynet, <laughs> so we will be solving so many more difficult problems in AI and AI safety and security of AI so that we won't have, you know, you know I, don't, I don't believe that this ultimate threat of a Skynet will, uh, will emerge because on its way, we would, we would kind of need to solve much simpler things when it comes to AI and safety, right? So, so whether whether AI will be uh, manipulating, you know, I'm okay if AI manipulates what I buy, but I'm not so so happy if, if AI manipulates what I read. So I think people will be first worried about what they read, right? And there'll be lots of regulations coming from the European Union and UK maybe in the in, in the use and development of AI and how it can influence our lives. So I'm not worried. So nothing to be worried about from your AI technologies? No. Good. Okay, so let me get down into some of the details then. You talked a lot about explanation, and you said that explanation was a really important part of what you were doing. Can you just say more generally why explanation is so important, not just in the work that you're doing, but in general, and then a little more detail about why it's so relevant to the, to the work that you're doing with security? Okay, so one, one can say that explanations are not important. If AI works fine, if it's efficient, precise, fast, it's okay, right? And you know, surprisingly, we are, we are using like lots of non-explainable AI for driving cars, actually, right? So once in a while, somebody goes baked in Tesla, right? But you know, those are just like child illnesses and we will grow out of this. However, I truly believe that in our society, there are tasks that we wouldn't be willing to give away happily to AI unless we fully understand. One example is healthcare. So people would be more careful about decisions be, being, being provided by the algorithm if they don't understand. I may be wrong. So, so if, a, if a machine tells me that I've got some terrible disease, I want to know exactly why I've got exactly. that disease, yeah. and then I want to know why it's going to be prescribing a particular treatment. Exactly. Okay. And it's not only because I've got this feeling that I want to know, but because human society, mankind, wouldn't be so trustworthy towards this new change. And humans are like really great in regulating themselves. There will be lots of regulation. And no matter whether we like it or not, AI will be regulated. And the explanations will be the mechanism against which often AI will be regulated. It's, it's not only regulation, it's also insurance. Often your insurance is big business, it's part of our lives. And in order to be able to insure something, you, know, you need to calculate the risks. 
and explanations will, will be one of the contributors to be able to explain the risks and hence being able to ensure it. So how does that relate to the work that you're doing in your systems to develop uh, security solutions? Why is explanation so important there? So two reasons. You I'll start with the latter one, which is uh, in the end, we would want people to take away all the worries about cybersecurity. We just want to tell Mike, don't worry, nothing bad happens to you. And if it does, we cover. We would insure you free of charge if you buy our system. In order to be able to do this, I really need to be able to understand what is it that can, can happen to you and, and how likely is it. I need to have much more precise argumentation, comp also computational, to be able to prive the risks and to give you such service. And I actually think that this is going to be the future of cybersecurity. Companies will try to take away the worry from people and compensate for the losses. So this is like one important argument why we need explanations. And the second one is to really be able to push automation to the security analysts. These days, they don't trust AI as much as they should. And by providing explanations, I really believe that AI will be more used in the whole sector. Okay. Can you say why it's, it's difficult to provide those explanations? It sounds like it's a, it's a problem, and what are the challenges in, in, in doing that? This is the uh, uh, balance between uh, performance, right, and how more compute you are happy to provide to constructing the explanation. The, the modern high-performing neural networks Deep networks, machining algorithms are known for being super, super statistical. And if you cut them into pieces, you won't see anything but entropy, right? So they, they have been designed so. That, that's, the, that's a current trend. Even Jeff Hinton, who founded the field of uh, deep networks, suggested that to be able to get more explanations, we need to backtrack and kind of start again from scratch. So if I understand correctly, what you're saying is, we can get to the right answer, we think, but unless we can explain it, we have a problem because we as people want to understand what's going on. And uh, crucially, I think, um, the current techniques that are being used, deep learning, neural networks, these are techniques that don't naturally lend themselves to providing that explanation. Exactly. These are almost my words. Okay. <laughs> no, nicely put. Thank you, Mike. So, so um, just so I understand again a little bit more, in the work that you're doing, is it about explaining the decisions about what's good and what's not good in terms of the, the, the malware? So it's about the decisions. It's about finding the... Okay, it's, it's tricky. It's about statistical approach to finding the arguments. So we first statistically find the verdict. We've got the verdict, right? And then we are trying to play around with zillions of combinations of support arguments that are hidden in the data. And we test an experiment and statistically model and calculate and then find the minimal set of arguments which are in the data and are supporting the hypothesis. Yeah, I'm going to try, to try to unpick this again, again, because I... I'm not as quick as you. So you're recognizing that there is something bad, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but you don't know exactly what it is that is causing you to recognize it as bad. 
Yeah. So we have this, this file, right? Mm -hmm. And then we have lots of data about this file. Where it came from, what it does, how it, how it acts on these servers, what it does with the user, how it traveled, you know, lots of data about you know, around this this file. And then what we try to do is we try to kind of play around the combinations and try to hide some of the arguments and then see whether the verdict would be the same if we hide those. And then we try to hide as many things as possible and still get the same answer. So you're trying different combinations of, of, of things that uh, make up this, this, this file yeah. to work out which is the set of things that cause you problems. Exactly, that are needed for causing the problem. Very good. OK, thank you. That, I understand. Um, now, explanations are interesting. And if I understand correctly, you're going to be generating these automatic explanations, which is fantastic. We'll understand. We'll be happy. We'll see why some, some messages are being blocked. And we will, everything will be great. But can you not tamper with the explanations themselves? Can't, can't, if we're talking about this world in which we have these adversaries who are going to try to be one step ahead of us, won't they be able to try to interfere with our, with our explanations? Yeah, uh, definitely there will be adversarial examples in a similar way that they are currently manipulating these statistical verdicts. I totally believe that uh, in a similar manner, the attackers will be super excited to deceive our system and to uh, push the explanations that will be deceptive. And uh, hence, it makes perfect sense to study those two problems together, the uh, adversariality, adversarial samples, and explanations at the same time. OK. Um, so again, uh, in this world in which we have these adversaries, uh, and in which these explanations, I think, are being generated automatically, mm -hmm. why do we want people in the loop at all? Why don't we, you said before that we weren't in any danger of, of uh, uh, in danger from machines. But actually, what you're saying is that people are, are, are going to be a weakness in this, right? Yeah, yeah, if you yeah. want to keep up with what's going on, you need to make sure that not just that you have automatic explanations, but that you keep the person out of the loop, because if the human's in the loop, then, then we're going to slow everything down. Yeah, yeah. I actually believe that you know, we are you know, at a safe, safe place when it comes to AI against AI. But until there is a person, we still kind of need to prove ourselves. And the person that is kind of behind attacks, this is the creativity on the other side. And it's not any longer the fight between man versus machine, right? It's, it's man versus man. And it's only a fight who can harvest the, kind of, the potential of empowering your job through AI better, whether it's the attackers or whether it's the defenders. My senses say that you know, currently the attackers do have a comfortable life because they can attack a lot, earn lots of money with rather simple stuff. Okay? So actually, I've got my intuitions that there are more PhDs on the defender side than on the attacker side. But it's may change. So we're winning at the moment? I think we are winning at the moment. Okay. Now, you've talked about a number of different things. You've talked about neural networks. You've talked about explanation. You've talked about adversarial AI. What's the, what's the scope of, of AI? Because you've talked about three or two to three particular things. Can you say something about whether AI as a whole has more than that to help in this battle against 
against the evil malware developers. Are there other things that we could be thinking about as well as, as, well as those techniques that you've mentioned? That's a great question. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, so what do you think? Uh, so I'll tell you my view. Um, I think that um, at the moment, people are talking about AI in the last few years, meaning generally deep learning or neural networks mm -hmm. or a very small subset of the very mm -hmm. large bag of technologies that the AI brings. So you've talked about um, adversarial AI. You've talked about game theory. Mm -hmm. I think there are many more techniques that can be used. And I think what we're seeing at the moment is the use of things like neural networks and deep learning because they're really good at doing a very small specific task. They're really good at pattern recognition mm -hmm. and they're really good at image recognition and they might be really good at malware recognition but as you've said, they can't explain things adequately mm -hmm. um, and they can't do a whole set of other things. I think when you started, you talked about reasoning, decision-making and perception as being the three parts mm -hmm. of AI. Mm -hmm. I see them being good at perception, not sure about reasoning. Decision-making, yes, in some cases, if the decision is, if the problem is well-formed. So, so I see much more scope for using these different techniques, and I suspect that we'll come to a little bit of a, a bottleneck very soon, where the techniques that we've been using up until now, which are really good at you know, listening to your voice if you're using Alexa or Siri or some of these other things, uh, will also want to do a little bit more. They won't want just to recognize some keywords. They'll want to be able to really have a discussion with you or an argument with you uh, or something else. Yeah, uh, you're right. And so this is, yeah, th there was kind of the opening argument about uh, the reasoning and knowledge-based AI where Europe has got kind of more uh, heads up comparing to other parts of the world. And I, I, really, I really agree with you there. Um, I don't know whether you know that, but uh, Ray Kurzweil, he said that by 2020, we will have a chatbot that will pass a Turing test. Later on, he kind of revised this, and he said it's going to be 2029. And he also made a bet with somebody, with, with Mitch Kapor, on whether this is going to happen, and he bet $20,000. So, and also, um, McKinsey, they suggested that by 2020, we will have 75% of chatbots passing Turing tests. So it's 2020. So 2020, and when you say passing the Turing test, you mean machines that cannot be distinguished from humans, right? Yeah. If they're behind the so screen, we won't be able to tell the difference. That's what they say. It's not what I'm saying, right? But you know, we are seeing the world of like large number of very unsophisticated chatbots. And I actually think that the number of unsophisticated chatbots will be growing faster than the world of these sophisticated chatbots. So I think that you know, this, this prediction won't, won't work. I don't know whether this is because all the chatbots are being trained on the scripts of communication and the underlying technology is still statistical. There is not, not much of a reasoning modeling that are running those chatbots. This can be the evidence why there is a limit of the current statistical artificial intelligence for tasks like like the chatbot. But I'm, I'm seeing also like lots of opportunity for combining uh, reasoning-based AI, AI which is based on modeling human reasoning and uh, causality and, and inference together with statistical. And those 
algorithms that are being developed currently at DeepMind that uh, are capable of playing Go and Shogun and, and poker combine these. They very much combine the capability of learning sophisticated game strategies, but from simulated executions that are reasoning-based, right? It's a combination of you know, how your bot is playing reasoning base, and you can improve it by statistics. So it's a nice combination how, those two, how these two worlds can nicely work together. Very good. I think it's very much how we work too. There are some things where we just recognize stuff, and there are some challenges where we have to sit and think and try to work out a good solution. I was at the executive training, and they told me that the uh, most amount of decisions that the executives are making are emotional anyway. Ha! Huh. <laughs> <laughs> to my surprise. <laughs> Uh, Would so you agree that? Because you are an executive. Are you making more of your decisions emotionally or rationally? All of my decisions are extremely rational. <laughs> <laughs> Always, no matter what the provocation. <laughs> um, okay, let me, let me ask something slightly different. Because I think we've talked a little bit about um, issues around trust. Mm -hmm. right? Explanation for me is a, is a way for us to as people to have trust mm -hmm. in what machines are doing, mm -hmm. uh, in the decisions that they're mm -hmm. making. Let me ask a little bit about safety. Mm -hmm. um, you've talked about uh, the decisions that your system's making, and you've talked about um, uh, uh, how things work in general, and you've talked about explanation as being helpful. You've also said that sometimes there are classifications, there are decisions that are not quite correct, mm -hmm. right? That we will, might recognize a file as being malware when it's not really malware. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, then that means that we're going to suffer some negative consequences, right? We will be less efficient, less effective. So what we want is for these systems to take away the bad things, mm -hmm. but not to take away the good things. Is it possible for these kinds of systems, whether it's in security, malware detection, or anything else, to provide some guarantees around the behavior to give us some safety. I mean, we've talked about trust so that we can feel comfortable in the world, but can we feel safe as well with some guarantees that AI systems aren't going to do bad things? That's a delightful question. Uh, AI is complex and sometimes unfair because it embodies bias through learning on data that contains human bias, right? And there has been a research in trying to remove it. It's very interesting, right? So to be able to remove things like gender or racial bias from the algorithm to make it better than the data on which the algorithm has been trained. So it's not about safety, but it's about kind of understanding and improving the quality of performance of AI. But your question was different. Your question was more into whether we can trust AI, whether it doesn't reach some uh, unsafe state, whether it would always behave the way it should. Can we guarantee some things about behavior? And there has been like lots of foundational computer science research in trying to formally verify systems, even before they are programmed as a huge field and very successful. And lots of great people wrote fantastic papers in, in, this, in those fields. The trouble, though, is that the current AI is large scale. There's a huge scale of how our systems are operating, what is the, uh, with what size of data they, they work with. And it's more difficult to do this with the current scale of AI. 
So and now comes an opinion of me as a practitioner of AI. I actually think that you know, what we miss and what we will be seeing soon will be AI monitoring systems. If you if you are a bank and you have, you've got your systems, there are systems that, that monitor systems that tells you whether this website is up and running. Right? It's very important for for the whole industry to have the monitoring systems to tell us, give us visibility on whether the software systems in big companies are running or not. I truly believe that there will be like a new industry, new startups will come out and will be building the layers of software that will be monitoring how the algorithms are making decisions, whether the decisions are efficient, biased, anomalous, with a trend of some sort. They'll be inspecting AI automatically and we will see our charts and our kind of, uh, you know, the, the presentation layers on the screen, which tells me in my AI system, everything works fine. So the monitoring is the piece that we don't currently have. So see if I get this right. So we're going to have our AI systems doing the things that they do. And then we're going to have another set of systems that are going to be watching the AI systems to tell us that the AI systems are doing the things they're supposed to do. This is what we will have. OK. I got that in my head. That's fine. So do you think, in that case, that there's a need for regulation? Because there are lots of governments and, and public bodies that are considering mm -hmm. whether AI is in need of regulation. I know that the House of Commons, the House of Lords, have been had AI committees examining what to do and what's important and so on. Do you think that regulation is also important, or do you think that we just need to trust these other machines to solve the problem for us? So in this whole world of AI, data, internet, intelligence systems, so we see that regulation is important. That regulation is a mechanism how people can be better protected. And I actually think that you know, in some AI businesses, some future AI businesses, we will see regulations as such. You need certain level of explainability for systems that run your business, or you need certain level of monitoring and keep, keep reporting how efficient your AI systems work. So I think that you, if our society is regulating me how I am investing my pension <coughs> savings, it's funny, right? My pension is funny. However, an AI system that will be running a healthcare institution and will be providing the diagnostics, will be telling what the trend is and what vaccine needs to be uh, manufactured for the next year, this will be regulated. This won't be just uh, a result of some data science experiment. This will be regulated. <laughs> I no. believe so. Let me ask one last question before opening up to the, to the floor. You talked about um, Ray Kurzweil, mm -hmm. who is a famous AI pioneer who, who's been predicting lots about the future. And you said that he was predicting that by 2020, we would have chatbots that pass the Turing test, that could pass themselves off as human, effectively. What's your prediction for 20 years from now? It's an unfair question, but, but okay. can you give one, at least one prediction for 20 years away? Okay, so I'll, you know, I'm much more down to earth. I'll give you a prediction for the next 10 years, right? 10 years, okay. I'll take so, it. Okay. So actually, you know, and it's simple. It's not very visionary. It's like really simple, right? I actually think that you, we won't be uh, 
using that much of the smart watch and smart a cell phone and smart earpods, but will be in big users of smart uh, toilets. I actually believe that smart, smart toilets will be a gadget for the next 10 years. Because you know, we will need to collect the data about our health in the least invasive, more, most efficient, and very frequent, in the best case, morning, right, way. So I'm a big believer in uh, smart toilets. Well, that's a fantastic way to end this part of the, this part of the conversation. You heard it here first. <laughs> smart toilets in 10 years' time. And if you set up a company to exploit the smart toilet idea, he needs a 5% cut. <laughs> I would invest. Okay. So we now are going to switch into uh, taking some questions from the floor, if there are any questions. Oh, we have lots of questions. And I think we have a, a roving microphone. So can we, there was one there, and then one over there in the stripy shirt, and then one just at the back. Hello. Um, very interesting talk. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask you a question which, if you could ignore the legal and moral parts of it, just stick to the AI. Um, the Metropolitan Police announced last Friday that they will be um, deploying live facial recognition cameras on the streets of London, maybe outside or down there. So I was wondering if, if you're walking down the street and you walk past one of these cameras, um, what would you say or ask of the officers who will, who will be in attendance at these cameras and there'll be a feedback form apparently they're handing out. What would you write, what comment or question would you write uh, again speaking about the AI rather yeah. than the legal and the moral stuff. So I'm not a Londoner. I think it's more a question for Mike. But before he answers, I'll give you my take. Um, I was disappointed when I've learned that among the 10 cities around the world with, with the most face recognition cameras, there are only two that are not Chinese. And one of those is London, actually. Right? So, so even, even before, London was known for this tech to be quite active. What's interesting is that it was mainly owned by private companies, unlike in China. Uh, I'm not a big fan because I'm lost. You know, my labels are all over the internet as much as yours and, and most of you guys. But the labels, faces of my kids are not there, right? So my kids can still hide on the internet. So, and I think that you know, using a face rec is an invasion to human privacy. And I was like pleased, pleasantly, when I have learned early last year that San Francisco was one of the first cities that banned it altogether. So the tech came from there, from California, and you, uh, the civic society, and you, the, even the entrepreneurs, and the money, which, which is in San Francisco, banned it. So um, I'm for banning. I don't think it's a good idea. How about you, Mike? I don't like the idea of facial recognition in the way that it might be used, um, <clears throat> as is being suggested. We have constraints on various other technologies and what might happen. Um, inevitably, as technology progresses, it tends to move ahead of our ability to understand the consequences, and we see that regularly. But we do know that people are paying attention. There are efforts to try to make sure we do sensible things, but it's a really important and very current, very current issue. Hi, uh, Patrick Tal. Um, 
I, I'm kind of horrified that it's 30 years ago that I was doing some work on truth maintenance and reasoning maintenance systems. So is uh, and making them multi-user, multi-agent rather. So is is that the kind of stuff that you're talking about in terms of explanation that kind of stores networks of assertions and how they're associated and enable multiple reasoning engines to operate on a kind of shared data set but where there could be some uh, disagreement between those? And, and it, it, is that where that's going? And, and I know when I was doing that work before, I was thinking that in a way we should just treat humans as another kind of agent so that there could be a conversation between the AI and the humans in coming to joint decisions about, in this case, threats. And so do you see that happening? So, okay, I'll start, and then, you can, then you can help me, Mike. <coughs> right. So, um, so when I told you that you know, I did uh, my master's in AI in Edinburgh, I was, I was doing proof planning and truth maintenance, right? So, so it was exactly what I used to love when I was a younger, younger student. And uh, it's fun. The limitation why there was a pause, a winter, in kind of, kind of doing like more development in this field, I think is the scalability. Because you know, AI became passionate for, this, for scale. So all, you know, all the greatest practical applications of AI recently have been based on this large scale. And actually, I think that you know, those, those models that I was studying myself 10 years ago were lim limited in terms of scaling up. How, however, you know, the uh, compute that is available today wasn't available 25 years ago, so for, for one. And second, uh, the statistical AI wasn't as developed. So I, I really believe these days that you know, a time is coming for kind of doing more reasoning-based AI around statistical, because it's, it's fun, we, we know it, we understand it, and now we feel that we need it because of explainability. Uh, you know, DARPA, for, for DARPA, explainability was a big priority even in 2016, I guess, like, like four years ago. It's nothing like new. DARPA knew that this is coming and they need to fund big programs in explainability. So I think explanation can be understood in two ways. On the one hand, there's explanation of things that are opaque, that are difficult to understand, which is some of the stuff that Michal um, was talking about earlier, right? You get neural networks, they come up with a decision, they say, yes, you can have a, a loan, you can buy, we'll give you a mortgage, you can buy a house, or no, you can't. And you need that to be explained somehow. The techniques that might be used at the moment, or the ones that are popular, that we've been talking, won't readily provide that. So explanation is a really important topic of research when it comes to those techniques that are difficult to understand. But your question is also about some other things, which is explanation of many other kinds of techniques. And what you've been talking about is uh, explanation where you have different entities coming together to work something out. Um, just like we're discussing here today, we've got AI there, or real, real intelligence there, intelligence here, and we're working something out together by asking questions, by challenging, by rebutting. In fact, what we're doing is also a field of AI, Michal mentioned it earlier, computational argumentation. Uh, and that's essentially a logic-based form of doing just what we're doing, where someone proposes an argument, someone else says, that's not quite right, because I know this other fact about the world. That so yes, that is absolutely a current field of work. Yes, uh, it's absolutely right that we need to deal with those kinds of issues. 
if you think about the medical field, where you have doctors with different specialisms, right? the same might be true computationally, where you have AI systems with different capability, with different knowledge bases, with different kinds of things, and they will need to come to a conclusion together. So, yes, typically that might be uh, logic-based, like your uh, truth maintenance systems. Um, so explanation is really crucial in both of those areas. It's just that one is particularly more current at the moment because of the, the, the things like Alexa and Siri and image recognition and the things that Michal's talking about. Now, yes, there's one down at the front, and we'll come back to the one at the back in a moment. Thank you very much for the talk. Um, you said that every day you get about 15 million new types of malware come into your company. How would the malware engineers be able to create this many different types? So it's 50 million. Uh, we, are, we are blocking 50 million files every day, out of which 50 million existing malware, out of which there are one million new files that we see, that, have been, that we haven't seen before, uh, which translates into hundreds of thousands of new malware, okay? So, so, so the new stuff, which is on the market each day, is hundreds of millions of, of malware. So there are many malware writers, right? I mean, even if each of the writers would write like 10 piece of pieces of malware every day, which is not true, then it'd be like 10,000 malware writers I think that you know, there are less people writing malware. So as a result of which, lots of these files are even today generated automatically. And these are mainly the alterations, right? So for one, we call these families, right? So for one type of malware, there are like lots of different alterations, and these alterations are done automatically. Hence, it's kind of more easy. And because I've said before, small change in malware can evade current malware setup. So that's, it's so easy, so cheap to create malware. So until now we play the catch-up game, we want to kind of clear this up as quickly as possible. And our proposal is to be able to predict it, to move the kind of malware uh, fight from reactive to predictive. Does that make challenge. sense? A big Thank challenge. You. There was a question over there at the back. Are there any more? Yes, uh, Yes. thanks for the talk. Um, I just wanted to follow up on the question about when AI or whatever system is being used gets it wrong. Um, in terms of you know, your experience within the cybersecurity world, do you not expect to have a certain number of cases where it is getting it wrong? That is, you're sort of false positive rate, so you're blocking files, but actually you know, it's not malware, or it's, it's not being blocked for a sort of legit legitimate reason. Um, and how do you kind of balance it in terms of the more serious cases where you miss something that you should have should have blocked? And I was just curious how how you kind of balance yeah. those two. So I can, I'm oh sorry, I can tell you how it's done today. So today, antivirus companies participate in benchmarks, and like third party is benchmarking all these software budgets on the market, right? So and we are kind of being really benchmarked against the recall and the and the number of false positives, right? So and you know actually Avas is doing pretty well, but you know, there are also others that are doing pretty well. And the number of misses is calculated in units, right? So given the size of the the number of files that we see, so each month we miss one or two or three, like really 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 small, right? So which which illustrates 
actually, this whole world is very statistical, that you statistically, you are pretty much getting everything. So what would be interesting, though, is to kind of investigate, like, yeah, and the, uh, antivirus is in the consumer space. So we are protecting users, right? Like, like Cisco's or, I don't know, like the other cybersecurity vendors, they are protecting enterprise. Our, our, our field is consumers, right? So, and there it's more statistical because we have half a billion users. It's a huge population. It's more interesting in the government-to-government -government cybersecurity. It's more interesting in the enterprise cybersecurity where the statistics has got totally different properties, right? And there, uh, you don't see uh, hundreds of thousands of new pieces of lethal marvel being created every day. There are projects where like hundreds of people are working on one piece of malware that, uh, and it takes months to develop and then a long time to deploy and then shut down a nuclear reactor. So it's totally different cybersecurity. There were two on that row. Um, thanks for the talk tonight. Um, I was particularly intrigued by the use of game theory, um, maybe to kind of combat kind of malware applications and development. So I was wondering if you could elaborate more on that. Can you help me with the question? I should game how, do you, how do you use game theory to help combat uh, malware? Okay. So I said before that uh, with the capability to evade adversarial samples, we are reducing efficacy. So we are less precise against the existing population of existing malware. So we, we give something for being predictive. We are less effective for the current. So we use game theory to be able to model the strategies of how much I want to be predictive versus how much the attackers want me to be predictive. This example, when in the past they were, this one competitor was kind of playing with us and building the legitimate piece of files that we have classified as malware. It was an example. They wanted us to be less precise, right? And you will be kind of trading off the precision for current precision for predictability. And this is it's a setup of like a mixed strategy game, large scale mixed strategy game, in which now we are experimenting with different approaches, different algorithms. We are experimenting with, with the double, double Oracle algorithms that are kind of modeling this interaction and optimizing against something. So currently we are optimizing against the uh, proportion of predictiveness and efficiency. Um, thank you very much for the talk. Um, you talked about regulation earlier on, and I'm wondering whether or not there's a, an argument for combining regulation with ethics and requiring practitioners to have ethical standards that they signed up to um, with concepts of do no harm, for example, and, and whether or not that's something that you would see happening in the future. Yeah, so I totally subscribe to your point. I think that the regulation kind of goes hand, hand in hand with ethics. Uh, Honestly, you know, the, you know, I, I see the whole world of AI from the ethical perspective into AI doing some reasoning, influencing our lives, and AI using some data. And I kind of see this, this problem as kind of divided into two sets. And uh, I'm, I'm more worried about the former one, about the AI using the right data, whether it's ethical to train on images, it's, 
But it's ethical for the government to train the algorithms on the images from our IDs. Have the IDs been collected for training the classifiers? We're not, right? Do governments use it now for training classifiers? Obviously they do, right? I'm not saying it's not ethical, but I'm also saying that it is ethical. To me, this is like one example of an ethical debate. To me, much more exciting than the ethics of the MIT uh, tram argument, whether the tram kills uh, a kid or an older lady, right? So I, I don't think it's interesting. Interesting is what kind of data we get and how the data is being provided, who, who owns the data, who is being remunerated for the use of the data, and what kind of application the data enables, right? So for me, an interesting ethical question is whether in the future, whether the individual users of the internet will have more control about where their data are, whether, and this is what I want to contribute as a scientist, whether we will have an opportunity in the future to pay for our services on the internet in a transparent way, to pay either with money or with data, right? So I wanna, I wanna choose in the future whether I'll pay for Gmail. Gmail is a great service. I love Gmail, it's like really, really good. But I would much rather pay $100 a year for Gmail rather than with my data. I don't have this choice. That frustrates me. And so, so for me, it's another ethical uh, aspect of, of AI, whether the AI was provided through the data or whether I would be paying for the, uh, for the piece of AI. Do you have any comments to ethics, Mike? So first, there are already codes of practice. There have been for a long time for computing in general. To what extent people know about them, to what extent they comply with them is an open question. And I think the same will be true for AI. What's interesting is that there are lots and lots and lots of uh, sets of principles and ethics that are being developed and published by large companies and by governments. And I think you have ethics on the one hand, absolutely crucial, that people should be doing things in a sensible, appropriate fashion. But if you want to guarantee what's happening, then you need to have regulation. Now, you wanted to come back. That's exactly right. So ethics is a code of practice. It's a voluntary thing. They should be there. It's a good thing to do. We should think about it. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely right. Regulation, if we want things to happen in a particular way, regulation may be necessary. But it's a very delicate question, and we're still very early in understanding exactly what the implications might be. But it's a really good question. There was a question over here. Uh, hi. Um, once we're going to roll out uh, automated cars and IoT systems and cities will be full with sensors, um, I suppose a lot of uh, malware will uh, start popping up. Um, is Avast um, thinking, considering, predicting anything um, in the automated car, yeah. for the automated car industry or for smart cities, smart houses, or even smart toilets, as you, <laughs> <laughs> as you mentioned. So thank you for the question. Avast is not actually currently thinking about doing anything in automated driving and car-to-car -car communications, but Avast have made in the past a huge bet on IoT as such. And Avast really believes that uh, the future carrier of malware will be the IoT devices, because it's Currently, it's much easier to hack a printer than anything else, right? It's easy, 
it's it's so easy. And if you are at a law firm, and you would like to exfiltrate data, doing that through a printer is the most straightforward way. It's easier than hacking like an email account. And uh, there are IoT devices. You, you you cannot check them all. There are way too many, way too diverse. So many are so old. It's a huge legacy problem, IoT devices. Huge. And uh, for example, we work with Stanford University with Zakir Dumerik, Professor Zakir Dumerik, and he's an expert in being able to measure. And he's measuring for us, for Avast, how many IoT devices are there, how they look like, who is using them, how they are protected, whether they have some protection. And <coughs> we have. We, we were thinking in Avast, you know, how to work around this problem. What is the starting point? And we felt that the most important is the household, right? Because you know, the number of smart devices in households are growing much faster than in the enterprises. So we have built a device, like a small router, omni-device, that you put at home and you plugged into your router, and it automatically identifies what is going on at home, what devices you have, what, whether they are patched, whether they are in some anomalous status, whether somebody is streaming video out of your home, you just don't want this, right? You want to see that you know, there is a video stream going out of your house. So, so this is where we are doing lots of research and uh, we are kind of one of the leaders uh, when it comes to IoT security. It's for us, it's a big investment because uh, users are currently buying other things, right? than uh, investing in IoT security, but we, you know, we see the future and we think that you know, this field will be huge and we are getting properly ready for this. Question here. So firstly, thank you for the talk, it's very interesting. But um, you spoke about how like nowadays, more and more of like cyber security, like attacks and defense is becoming automated by machine learning and AI. Is there, do you believe there might be like a point where it's more AI than human or just completely AI? And if so, what would like the humans do at that point into like in those kind of jobs, what would it trans transfer to? This is a super exciting question, and believe me or not, I'm spending lots of my time thinking about this, actually. And I don't have an answer. You know, I won't, I won't tease you with like a sophisticated answer. But so far, we are betting on somebody having the idea, right? In the cyber world, the attackers do have ideas. You know, I don't want to kind of be under attack in the evening, but you know, I would like to say that you know, these ideas are not so, not so sophisticated. You know, they are still simple, they are still brute force. The most of the attacks are brute force. Kind of write simple malware and just spread it and see what I can get, right? I think that the trend that we will see is that you know, there'll be less of these. And there'll be more of the targeted, sophisticated. I, w I want you, or I want you, because I know that you are from a rich family or because you are vulnerable. So your malware will be choosing. And there'll be like more AI, but still run by people. I haven't figured out the argument or the this inflection point why the creativity from the attacker side would go away. I don't think that you know, the machines would need to want money for themselves. They don't. If they need something, this may be energy. They would start switching off your air conditioning. 
because they won't compute, right? This, this may happen. By the way, uh, the amount of Bitcoin transactions around the world is eating as much energy as the Czech Republic total, or as an, or as an Ireland total, right? So imagine another Bitcoin something, right? And you, we may be short of energy. So, so if AI needs something, it needs energy. There's one here, and then there's one at the front. Hi, just a basic malware question. You obviously have a great perspective and visibility of what's going on. I was just curious what methods of attack people are using, how you see that changing. For example, is it attacking browsers, phishing, et cetera, or other things? So are you asking about the defense or the attackers? Uh, the attackers, what mechanisms they're using and how that's changing over time. So yeah, so so it depends what type of malware you are investigating, right? So when um, so the uh, so it's it's difficult to kind of provide like an overarching analysis. Of what are the trends, right? So so we are seeing interesting trends, for example, in in packing malware and packing the. Um, Triggering conditions in malware as a as a neural network. So, like one of the interesting trends recently that we saw was uh, in the software that helps with uh, images, where that often is full of like some neural networks or some classifiers that are statistical that are very difficult to explain, right? And one of those becomes a triggering function, right? It's very difficult to reverse engineer a piece of a neural network which is why we are seeing a trend that the attackers are hiding the uh, triggering conditions into neural networks. That's one of the interesting pieces, pieces that we saw. As an example. And then one here at the front. Hello, so thank you for the amazing talk, but <laughs> I'd like to know how much will AI be able to automate penetration testing? So, say, trying to exploit a system so you know, then know where its vulnerabilities are so you can patch them? Yes, it's a great question. And it is a huge area for use of AI these days because your pen testers are very expensive and we don't have many of these. And your AI systems currently are doing a lot of pen testing. And uh, yeah, it will, it will be even more exciting in the future. There have been research projects where people are trying to predict vulnerabilities. You know, there are like a code repositories around the world where uh, people are putting a, uh, errors and uh, malfunctions in code that in a way can become a data for projections of the vulnerabilities for systems and people are speculating that these can be leads to be able to predict what the future model would look like. So, so pen testing is a, is a great field, and it's getting very automated. Okay, thank you. There's one more question over there. Thanks for the speak. Very interesting. Um, are you seeing any evidence of people sort of planting seeds in open source code, in large repositories, et cetera, that could later be exploited by sort of interconnecting them all together? That's a great question. You know, we were debating that in the past. You know, uh, we are not seeing. Are you? 
I would be interested because you know, this, uh, this is debated quite often. Is there any last question or two? I was just interested when you were talking about um, uh, people's trust and, and needing to understand how something works. Well, when, when you start to talk about machines making decisions for us. And um, I did it a few years ago. I shot a film in uh, America for Google for their Waymo self-driving car. And it was exactly if they wanted to make something that explained a bit how it works and the sensors and all that sort mm -hmm. of thing. And what was interesting about it is we made this film and at the end of it, they said, do you want to go for a ride in the car? You know, we'll put it in kind of drive mode. And we, we, um, we drove across Phoenix in the car, you know, in its automatic mode. And literally by the end of a half hour drive, Phoenix in the rush hour, I'd sort of completely stopped worrying about my safety or anything, become completely relaxed that this car was going to, you know, there was someone there with the emergency stop button, but basically it was very quick from, from getting into it and actually becoming totally trusting of it, and I think, you know, and I didn't really know how it worked, of course, uh, and I just thought that actually those things, you quite quickly can get used to them, and I think a lot of that stuff people would get used to quite quickly and not need to really understand it that much. I think once you do a couple of rides, you go, it works. Mm -hmm. And it's fine. So I just thought that, that you know, yeah. the question of whether people really do need to understand those things to make decisions was talking about you know, medical decisions and mm -hmm. things like that. And I wonder how much uh, that is the case or how much people will just, want, once it starts happening, mm -hmm. people will just get used to it. Yeah, you know, I like, uh, I like this, qu this question very much. Uh, some people are comparing autonomous car to a lift, right? So we are totally okay with the lift. We don't need to understand it, and we use it. And what's kind of you know, the the note you know, the note I've made early on that you know, we car is full of non-explainable AI. It will always be like this. So we we will never learn how why exactly camera sees this shade the way it sees. It just sees it this way, and we cannot miss this train. We will not get any more explainability on the camera on the car, and we will be driving the car right. So actually, I think that your car is the there's the use case that will be the last big unexplainable use case that we will get used to. I actually believe so. Uh, the explainability that you know, I'm talking about is, is the one which, is, which will be you know, in healthcare and maybe education and, and media and all, all those kind of really uh, application areas that badly influence the society. And actually, I think that explainability is very much related to future job market. When I got this rec recent interview, when people were asking me, what is the future, what will be the future jobs, right? So some jobs will go away, and new jobs will come, and what they will be like. I said, you know what? I don't know. But when they asked me uh, what the job skills of the future in the market will be, I'm, I'm sure that there'll be like one very strong job skill that will be asked for, and this is empathy. Empathy, people towards people, and people towards machines. The empathy that you, we will be more understanding machines, that we will be able to work with them better, we will be able to take the benefits of what they do for us better, will make people on the job market more efficient, more successful, right? So I think that those who, those who will understand machines will have better opportunity to take, the, to take more benefit from, from AI, but also be more creative, be more critical thinkers, and be those who will be inventing new things. Will be the, the human of the, of the future will be the human that will be inventing new things. They'll be creative, right? I should think you're either creative or working for people. These are the two kind of job lines I'll see in the future. Not 
people working for machines or for numbers or for money, but people working for uh, uh, working uh, so that they, they create, they innovate, and people who work for people, right? People to people, this new people to people economy. I don't believe in uh, robotic nurses. I don't think it will be only in poor countries. Rich countries will have human nurses. Poor countries will have robotic nurses. So I'm going to end with a question of my own, uh, which I'm going to ask all of you. I'd like hands for this one. And that is, how many of you think that uh, we should be worried that rather than give our trust to machines that are, that are self-driving, we should be concerned to make sure there are these things like explanation and guarantees and so on. And how many of you think that uh, actually it will be fine, we'll just get on with it? So if you're worried about AI, if you're concerned to make sure that we have the right checks and balances, that we have regulation and ethics, that we have uh, explanation and so on, raise your hand now. And how many of you think, actually, we're going to be fine? It will be all right. Oh, <laughs> okay. I think it's a very clear answer there. <laughs> Thank you all very much for your questions, which were absolutely brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for this extremely insightful uh, and eye-opening uh, presentations and discussions that, that follow. Let me once again to thank the Royal Institutions for hosting us uh, here for the first rounds of the AI Science Cafe series. Also, I'd like to uh, big thank you to Avast, which is uh, the supporter and partner of the entire series here. And mentioning that the, the series, before I invite you for the complimentary sample of the Czech beer boudoir in the next door, that you can carry the informal discussions on the, on the AI. I'd like to invite you to the second run of the AI series, which will be on the autonomous uh, mobility. It's on 25th of February. I think uh, most of you, all of you, might have received the flyer here. You find the information on the presenter, uh, Mikhail Chap, who is a researcher and the MIT spin-off uh, IC AI which is uh, promising to be quite quite interesting. And it's going to be on 25th of February uh, at the Czech Center, uh, alias the Czech, Czech Embassy, a little bit further away, uh, close to the Hyde Park. So I hope to see uh, many of you there. Uh, make sure to uh, book your seats quickly as they sell, sell out. And thank you again for coming this evening. And the, uh, the, the samples are open at next door. So thank you.